are listening to Up To Me Radio, the best in inspirational talk radio. It's up to me. Welcome to A Healthier View, where Dr. Clithrow and I give insights to our listeners about everything relevant to your health and well-being. And you know, I'm proud to say that we're in our sixth season of this show, and I know that I speak for Scott when I say we try so hard to bring topics that we think you will enjoy so you can actually have a healthier view on life. And Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Beth. I love this time of year, and it's... um motivating me to get outside more and get some vitamin D with the sun and and just try to be more active and get some exercise in. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm actually coming, you know, these allergies this time of year. I'm sounding a little raspy today and that's why, but (laughs) you know, you're just like one of the busiest people I know. And, you know, I brag on you on the show a lot, but every time we talk, you're zipping here, you're zapping there. And, being the new president of the Austin Medical Association, you just got busier, huh? Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, I'm the president of the, of the actual Travis County Medical Society, which is, encompasses Austin um, metropolitan area. And it's been a great experience. So many great physicians and, and physician leaders and working with the medical leadership here in town. And it's been a great experience. But yes, it has been quite busy. <laughs> like I said, you know, I was just listening to you talk and you're such a good speaker and I have to fill in our audience on some behind the scenes intel. And we try really hard to get good guests from time to time and um, oh, all the time we do, but sometimes it's hard to find them or sometimes they cancel on us. And I have always said, when we can't find a guest for an upcoming show, I want to interview you, Scott, would you be up uh- for that? Oh my gosh. Yes. Um, that would be fun. Yeah. I guess, um, I'll have to be put my other hat on instead of asking the questions, I'll have to be answering the questions. I would love that. And that might be just, you have to think quick on your feet, but, um, so can I ask you a quick question, kind of a sneak peek, if you will, and what you might sound like before you get the lowdown on our guest today. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about a difficult patient that you've had in your career and how did you deal with that? Oh my gosh, where do I start? Well, I, I just recently, I had a patient who was um, uh, difficult on many levels. Uh, the, the patient had, was, had been diagnosed with um, malignancy and um, was very ill, but um, uh, fortunately made it through surgery and um, was very much slow to heal. And, and as uh, she got better, she got more demanding and she became, you know, critical of the staff, critical of the medical staff, the nursing staff, the housekeeping, everybody in the hospital, um, pretty much just quite a bit of resentment and everything. And, and she was starting to burn some bridges, if you will. There were certain nurses that didn't want to work with her and she made a few nurses cry. And some Aww. of my, uh, yeah, some of my partners were, um, also, you know, not looking forward to going in and seeing her when they were covering uh, the service. And I, I kind of reached back when it was, um, you know, I've been taking care of her when I was going in one day to see her. I reached back um, to uh, one of my professors in med school who's now since gone to heaven. His name was Walter Kirkendall. And he, I learned so much from him internal medicine wise and, and just life wise. And one day on rounds, he, um, he told us to treat every patient like they're your mom. Mm-hmm. And, and I have remembered that call to empathy many times. And sometimes it's not easy, as you know, but I, um, I was very moved by that. So as I was walking up the stairs to um, see this patient, I thought about Dr. Kirkendall and what he said. And I thought, well, my mom is not quite like that, but yet I would imagine that my mom would show her fear and her concerns and her sadness and her grief for, for the, the, the diagnosis that she has and the difficulties she's going through in different ways. So this is just this patient's way of doing it. So 
I, I said a quick prayer. I thought about Dr. Kirkendall. I thought about my mom, I took a deep breath and walked in. And like I always do, I sit down and I try not to speak at all for the whole time the patient's talking for at least five minutes. And she talked the entire five minutes and had a lot of complaints. And, and then at the end of the five minutes, she, she paused, take a breath. And I said, this all must be very difficult for you. And um, she looked at me and started crying. Oh, that's um, Yeah. And she said, yeah, it really is. And I said, tell me more. And, and then she talked and she cried some more and talked about her fear of not being able to see her grandkids do this or that, or be there for her husband and all this. And, and um, it, it was wonderful. And so I, I guess it was just that um, the power of empathy, I call it vitamin E, you know, it's, it's, it's very powerful, not just in the healthcare field. Right. But I mean, I think it's very important to try to take away the things that you're feeling in response to somebody and try and put yourself in their shoes and, and try to be a little more understanding of what they're going through. And so I thank Dr. Dr. Kirkendall for that. I think, I thank my parents too, but Dr. Kirkendall really hit me at a vulnerable time in my life when I was Mm -hmm. pretty upset. I was, you know, not upset about being in med school, but just tired and grouchy. And he said it at the, I guess he was, he was talking directly to me and that basically changed, I think the course of my career. So uh, that's a, that's my story. You gave her a heart at peace. That's what I always say. You had a heart at peace and you gave her a little piece (laughs) of that. Well, that was a great question. I hope I didn't go on too long, but that is a a very, uh, very powerful uh, part of my uh, recent practice. So I'm glad I was able to share that with you. Well, I want you to tell our audience about our guest today. Oh my gosh. Okay, great. Well, I am so happy to introduce to y'all Maisha Battle. She is a sex therapist and she launched a practice called Sex for Life which is her home to coach and teach others, her clientele about uh, sexual health. She has a podcast called Down for Whatever. Um, She started her practice with the intention of helping people have more fulfilling and exciting lives. Let us, we said lives, not just sex lives. And she is so, so informative, such a great speaker and so excited about her topic. I can't wait for y'all to meet her. Uh, She is quoted as saying, this is the work I was meant to do. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce to y'all, Maisha Battle. Maisha, I'm so excited to have a conversation with you. I mean, you're a teacher, a coach, and have done incredible work over the past few years. And I've been following you for the past couple of weeks now, and I'm such a fan of your work and your blogs. And that is why we really wanted to bring you on today. So Maisha, welcome to A Healthier View. Thank you so much for having me. Um, can you tell us how did this, how did all of this start for you? I mean, why did you start a business over the importance of having healthy intimacy in your life, having authentic relationships and all that deep stuff that people get embarrassed or even squirmy about when the word sex is brought up? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of for those very reasons that I recognized even at a very young age, how limited sex education was. And not only that we were getting limited information on how to make very big choices in our lives later on, but also it was limiting in that it didn't really address more broad subjects that uh, are you know, really pertinent to having a good sex life, like pleasure, <laughs> how to have good sex for you you know, how to communicate what you like uh, with a new partner or even with someone who you've been having sex with for a long time, you know, folks in long-term partnership marriages really struggle with this. So, you know, I knew that there was an education gap for sure, but I also knew that we weren't giving people space within partnerships very often to address these things. So it was kind of this combination of, I was noticing it in my personal life of like, wow, you know, people are really resistant to talking about this. Or, you know, if I express a need, it's taken as a criticism or, you know, how do I move through the world with like sex as a priority for me in relationships, but not be perceived as, you know, something, you know, negative. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of conflict for me as a a person, you know, just going about my life. But broadly speaking, I was very curious about how this impacted people's health and wellness, because it's beyond 
um, STIs and pregnancy prevention, there is a real wellness component to being able to feel like you can live of an authentic sexuality that's reflective of what you want, what you need, and who you are at your core. So all of those things together, I was like, you know, there's a there's an opportunity here. I don't know how to get at it professionally, or even if I can make a career out of it, but I'm going to try. Um, so I, I studied sex education um, in undergrad and then went over to Amsterdam and studied gender and sexuality there as well. And, you know, that's when I really realized culture plays a big part in how we allow people to express themselves, um, you know the Dutch just have a more permissive culture and dialogue around sexuality. So I knew there was something to that. Like if we just kind of make it okay for people to talk about sex, then, you know, things can, can start to shift. And then I went back to school to get my master's in psychology, because for me at that time, I thought I would probably need to become a sex therapist Mm-hmm. But getting my master's, I realized um, I could actually just apply coaching to this. I wouldn't have to go on and get my PhD, and you know, which is a very expensive, very long thing. And I really just knew I wanted to figure out a way where I could work directly with people to empower them with the skills to ask themselves the deeper questions about their sex lives and also just to bounce things off of someone else, you know, because we are so secretive about our sex lives most of the time. So that is how I came to do this. And so far it's working. Um, <laughs> yeah. Maisha, you know, I um, really enjoyed uh, some of your YouTube videos and I highly, highly recommend to our listeners to check, check her out, check out some of her uh, presence on YouTube. But you were mentioning kind of going back to your upbringing, growing up in the South and, you know, I grew up in Houston myself and um, my mom and dad were not, it wasn't a religious thing, but I'm not sure. And they were you know, great parents, but I, I joked that I'm still waiting for the sex talk for my parents. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so how, how did, I think, how did, maybe, can you talk about that part of how it impacted you? And because I think a lot of our listeners probably may have grown up in similar situations where there was not that openness in, in, in the household when they were uh, adolescents and young adults. Sure. Yeah, I mean, growing up in the South, I was smack dab in the Bible Belt and a lot of my friends Uh, We're going to church on Sundays. My family didn't really. Mm -hmm. My family was kind of um, outcast or different in a lot of different ways. I'm uh, from a uh, interracial marriage. My dad's black, my mom's white. Um, They were actually unmarried before moving to the South, but my mom was like, we need to get married before we go down there Uh, because we're already, you know, stirring the pot being an interracial couple with kids. Um, so that's how that happened. But then, you know, my father actually was raised pretty religious, but that just didn't really resonate with him. Most of my upbringing, he has since gone back into the church. But, um, during the time where I was raised in the South, I already felt like, Hmm, okay, we're doing things a little bit different and I'm getting, I think more, uh, well, I would say less sort of, uh, restrictions Mm -hmm. on things I could watch, for instance, I noticed, you know, there was a difference between my friends and I and the things that I could watch on TV. And a lot of things I was watching included, you know, things with, you know, relatively speaking, age appropriate sexual themes, but my friends weren't even allowed to watch that, right? Or, you know, dating shows, Degrassi or whatever. It was just like, there was a, there was just a lot of constriction around like, you don't watch that, otherwise you're going to hell or you can't do that or you're going to hell. And I didn't have that. So I knew, again, you know, culture was playing a role in how people were viewing what can and can't be possible within sex. And then also it was guiding people towards, um, you know, a type of sex and a type of partner and a type of life that, you know, as we grow older, it just doesn't fit for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. So Yeah, I I recognized that from a really young age, partly for being, you know, an outsider looking in, so to speak, on the culture, but also because, you know, growing up and seeing, meeting people from all different backgrounds, not just the South, the people who grew up with, you know, restrictive messages around, you know, you can do this, but you can't do that, or, and, and, our society does a great job of this, even in the absence of religion, right? So, you know, you you didn't have to grow up in a religious household to have, you know, kind of notions around what was right and wrong. 
Um, but I just have always felt like there's just got to be more to it than that. You know, there's just got to be more ways that we can empower people to think critically about what they want for sure and make good decisions based on their values, but also like not feel like if they make a misstep, which a lot of us do, that it's all going to fall to pieces and they're never going to get what they want and they're never going to, you know, be a full, um, you know, loving person because I do believe that that's some of the messaging that a lot of folks get is well, if you have sex too early or if you get pregnant and all these things, mm-hmm. um, you're not a worthy partner. And that's just, yeah. that's just not true in my not eyes. No, I agree. Um, yeah, great answer. And you know, one of the things that I do with my clients is I talk about stress management and mm-hmm. I'd like to ask you about stress and our libido. I mean, we all deal with stress at some point in our lives, but some folks, have chronic stress on a daily basis and don't deal with it in a healthy way, which can be a real physical threat to our spirits, our health, our bodies, and our relationships. But when people deal with a stressful job and they're going zero to 100 all day long, or perhaps they just have a stressful life, the last thing on someone's mind is being intimate. But if that person is 24 seven on the go, what do you tell them to have that deeper connection with their partner and enjoy intimacy when all seems to be a lost cause because of stress? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I talk to my clients all the time about stress. Usually, you know, people come in and they're like, all right, I'm going to figure this sex thing out. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to do it better. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, what's your stress like? <laughs> you know, right. what uh-huh. are you doing to manage your stress? How much time do you have in the week or the day for just you? How often are you, you know, tapping into your sensuality? You know, not everybody thinks of themselves as a sensual person, but by the definition of having five senses, (laughs) we are sensual and we go out into the world and need that kind of stimulation to take in and process and just feel human again. So a lot of people have sort of been pushed in this direction of productivity, goals, outcomes and they're really uh at a loss when I ask them well what's your process around decompressing from all that and tapping into your body they're like what do you even mean (laughs) so we start there we start there because how can you be in touch with your senses if you're living a lot of sexologists say from the neck up right there's a lot of neck up living out there Mm -hmm. and we as a culture have a hard time putting um our emphasis on and importance on living neck down. In fact, with those earlier messages from childhood about that being less than or base or primal, um, we actually can experience a lot of guilt when we shift our focus from the neck up to the neck down. People have a lot of conflicting ideas about what it means to receive pleasure in their body and like, should they actually feel good about that or not? And so that's when those cultural messages really come into play. And, and I, as a coach, have to push back and go, you know, is this helpful for you, you know, to be living like this? And to, if your goal is to tap more into your sexual energy, but you're going, going, going 24 seven, like, how can we bridge that gap between, you know, <laughs> oh, I have no space in my life or my body and my pleasures to, you know, oh, I have a full self-care routine. You know, there's, there's plenty of space between those two ends of the spectrum that we can start to make tiny little incremental changes in their life. And sometimes that means making adjustments to their work schedule. So they have time to be a full human and to have time for sex. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so much uh, data that seems to be coming out and I'm sure you are more aware of it than I am, but you know, just about how good sex is for your health. I mean, you know, uh, sleep better, lower, you know, your blood pressure and on and on and on. Does that kind of factor in sometimes to your coaching and your practice? I mean, does that come up? It's almost a chicken and egg type thing. Like Beth was saying, you know, you have a stressful life. It's hard to maybe shift into an intimate type situation at the end of a long day or what have you. But then also, well, gosh, if maybe if I was incorporating that into my life, I'd have, uh, I'd overall feel better and have less stress. It's kind of a, almost a cycle, isn't it? Right. Yeah. I, have an anecdote to kind of speak to that, which is I just wrapped up working with a couple who are, you know, in a a very hustle bustle type city in the U S and we're really having a hard time connecting sexually. And one of the things I kept stressing was, you know, you, 
you both seem to have a, de- a lot of demands on your time. How can we create, even if it's time on the calendar, how can we, you know, really put sex as a priority for you? Because everything else on your calendar seems to be getting checked mm-hmm. off. <laughs> You're very good at doing everything that's there. Yeah. But what about this intimacy piece, you know? And so we tried that for a while and it was making some improvements, but what really turned the work around for them was this was actually a couple that was getting ready to get married. And so they got married, they went on their honeymoon. And while they were on their honeymoon and had like zero expectations on them and, and their time, oh, wow, they wanted to have sex, <laughs> right? And it's like, you can't reproduce vacation all the time. We can't be on vacation all the time, but what, you know, what, what can you pull from that mindset? How do you recreate that in your, in your life? And, you know, sometimes when I work with clients, I get choked up in those moments, Beth, you might relate to this where there's like, we just get that aha moment. Mm -hmm. And the wife said to me, you know, I guess we just need to be working on prioritizing pleasure, like every single day. And I was like, yes, Eureka, it's not, <laughs> it's, you know, it's about sex. Yes. Because that's what they came to have. And they increased the amount of sex that they had while working with me. But in the end, if I can leave people with this notion of like, wow, there's so much more to life than clocking in and out and producing something for myself because I'm a business owner or, you know, my staff or my boss, And what we're really here to do is have a shared experience. So how do we even get into the mindset of having a shared experience if we're not connecting to what makes us both feel really good? And part of that is focusing on what makes you feel good as an individual. And part of that is really committing to that shared experience of pleasure with each other. So that's where, you know, they got to think about what are the things we love to do? How do we bring more intimacy and start to plan for more of that in their week, which was, you know, that's all I can really ask for. That's a wonderful story. That's great. Yeah. You know, Maisha, I think we've all been at a place where we felt inadequate or perhaps not attractive or don't feel sexy or have low confidence in our bodies. And for the record, I'm not opposed to plastic surgery. And of course I love it when people work out and eat healthy to be healthier, but when they do it just to look a certain way, I think that can be a depressing place because you really can't deny the reality of aging. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why our culture is so focused on beauty. And this question is kind of a twofer, but why do you Mm -hmm. think society um, or idea of beauty is so narrow? And do you think Hollywood has made women and men feel unlovable or not sexy because of unrealistic expectations of beauty? Absolutely. Um, yes to everything you said. I think, you know, in, in my kind of formative education around feminism, one of the things that I got to look at and, and sort of interrogate was, why am I stacking my body up to what anybody else looks like, right? It's just, I have this body, I have to live in it we all have bodies that we're all living in and they come in a glorious amount of shapes, sizes, colors, and abilities. And yet, you know, through a history of, you know, colonization and, you know, what that has done to set up uh, a hierarchy of what attractive is more desirable, you know, if you have more access to resources and you look a certain way, Um, that's desirable to be that way, to look that way, right? So we have that kind of inherent white supremacy uh, imbued in our beauty standards, which is so limiting for even white people, because what, you know, what is that even, you know, it's a body type also, which a lot of people don't uh, have for a lot of different reasons. I want to do a plug for a podcast that has really open my eyes to a lot of things related to body image, um, our culture's obsession with youth and um, anti-fat bias. uh, And that is called Maintenance Phase. It is hosted by two amazing people. And because I'm on the spot right now, I cannot remember their names. (laughs) Um, 
<laughs> but maintenance phase is the podcast. You can find it anywhere. And it's really helped me even as, you know, quote unquote, seasoned, seasoned professional in this arena, think about really the impact that these standards have on us and their origins, because the origins of these beauty standards are not neutral, right? They don't just come from this, like, and God created man and he determined that, you know, that there are, there are ways in which cultural culture has constructed ways that we measure ourselves against other people. And that show does a fantastic job of looking at like, why did that happen? Why do we have the BMI, which is meant to be used on a population level and was developed in one population in Europe. And we have applied it to literally everyone on the planet. Um, When those health outcomes that are related to certain BMIs for that specific culture um, just aren't present in other populations. We know this, and yet we keep pushing this. If you have a BMI over this, you have to do something about it. Well, if you have no health concerns, maybe we need to rethink that, but that's a that's a larger question, but I do think it has um, individual implications because people have been comparing themselves to a BMI. They've had their parents tell them you need to be this or you need to be that. And they've had internal ideas based on what they see in Hollywood um, as representations of beauty of like, I'm not that. So I must be undesirable. Well, you know that love story played out for that person because they're thin and because they're young and because they're white when I'm not any of those things. So I don't, I don't think I can even expect some of those outcomes for myself in my life. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just this kind of, (laughs) there are just too many factors that play into this um, that have real impacts on whether or not people feel good about the person who they are. And I I think Mm -hmm. this is the hardest part of, of my work is, is looking that head on. Cause it really does affect every single person yeah. that I work with male, yeah. female, trans, non-binary, you name it. Everyone has these issues. And I think maybe that's, that's good to, to recognize because if everyone has a problem with it, we as a culture must be doing it wrong, not yes. individuals. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I, I got to talk to you about, uh, anatomy, you know, I, mm. again, your video, um, were so informative and I I was really uh, blown away by your knowledge and I learned a lot and I remember back when I was in med school and doing the human anatomy uh, course and the we got to the reproductive organs it was difficult for many levels and again this is many years ago and I hope it's better now but I was really impressed with how you kind of went through the clitoris and the anatomy and and, and I, you know again I, I was sitting there thinking I want my my two young boys, I have a two, two boys and a, and a daughter. I want them to see this as much. It was so informative and I really learned a lot from you. And I just wanted you, and I know you have a, a nickname and you have, uh, you know, you have um, props, <laughs> if you will. If you, if you could tell our listeners about that, I, I was blown away by that. I thought that was so cool. Yes. You know, I, <laughs> I have to comment on your last name because when I saw it, yeah. first, I was like, clit hero. Yes. We need more clit heroes. It's, oh my gosh. So, you would not believe how much I've, I've heard that. That's so funny. I never thought of that. But, you know, <laughs> well, that's where I my mind it. goes immediately, Beth. So exactly. that needs help. Yeah. I mean, it's your world. If you show me a word with clit in it, I'm going to just gravitate towards that. So it, it does make me happy that you, you saw that video where I broke out my 3D model of um, a clitoris, which we really didn't have um, yeah. until the 1990s. Yeah. So we're talking relatively recent here. I mean, I was in high school yeah. <laughs> when this came out yeah. and, uh, you know, and I still didn't get exposed to it mm-hmm. until I was training to become a sex coach in the 2010s. So, you know, 30 years later, so it's, it's it really, or 20 years. Um, so it, it's really something that, uh, is new. And then it, there's also this like weird thing where we've, we've heard about the clitoris, right? We know it's important but we still didn't have a full grasp of what it was and how similar it is to the penis. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, it's funny because we think about um, homologous structures as we're growing in utero and how they develop into one thing or another, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Depending on sex. And it's just like, we just didn't think there were homologous structures for genitals you know, yeah, like, yeah. and it's, it's really funny how we've really convinced ourselves that it's just that 
there's been this emphasis on male sexuality being dominant in so many ways. Like the male body, for instance, is historically more studied. And we just, we know this, a lot of early studies of, of health of all kinds. Oh, yeah. uh, the population was based on entirely men. So for instance, things that have to do with, you know, health concerns, like, uh, you know, heart attack and things like that. A lot of those early studies were done on men. Absolutely. Um, so we have very little knowledge about how certain things affect women, but the same is true for sex, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So we have always kind of had this lock and key idea about sex, which if you are not attracted to the opposite gender doesn't even work for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also just this idea that, um, women are a receptacle and there, there, there is something that gets put inside them and, you know, maybe some of them enjoy it. Maybe some of them don't, you know, we just don't know why, (laughs) you know, if they, if they enjoy it, we don't know why, and we're not going to look into it. So luckily there's been more of an investment in female pleasure. Like, what is it? How does it show up? How, how might it be, you know, maybe complementary to male desire and male pleasure, but maybe there are some unique qualities to it. And I think this is a really great area for, you know, a feminist perspective where it's like, you know, we are different for sure. You know, you look at us, we don't have the same bodies, but that doesn't mean that we're just meant to, you know, be slotted, <laughs> you know, it, that we have these sort of like absolutely complementary um mechanisms when it comes to sex um and and there's reasons for that you know it would be really cool to know why but i think more important is just knowing that everybody's different everybody is different and so you know we we have these very large assumptions about what male sexuality even looks like because of all the research that's been put forward is like well you have to have a really hard erection it's, you yeah. know you got to ejaculate this many times and mm-hmm. you know it's uh that's pressure to perform and then we have the female version of that kind of pressure which is you know you got to have multiple orgasms you got to squirt you got to do all this all with you know very little understanding of how female anatomy actually works and so i'm really grateful for the Uh, French researchers who figured out this internal model of the clitoris of what it actually looks like. It's much bigger. Um, And this is a podcast, so I can't show you my, my 3d model who I nicknamed (laughs) Sheila. Um, Sheila is uh, my kind of like demo. uh, And I got her at a, a a sex conference that I was in in Mexico city where there was a woman who was doing, you know, selling these, but the 3d print blueprints are available they're open source um so if you would like to know uh and have your own model of what the full structure of a clitoris is you can go online and if you have access to a 3d printer you can print one out for yourself oh which wow is that's awesome. great yeah yeah oh that, so, is, that is so interesting you know listening to you talk i mean i i, I have um take care of a number of patients who've come in with endometriosis women of course and I've, I've talked to gynecologists and, you know, if men suffer from endometriosis, we'd already have a cure. You know I mean? It's oh, like, it's one of the many yes. examples of, of, of diseases that, you know, women have gone through that it seemed to have just not been a studied. I, I, you really, it hit home, you know, we, you know, the, the, the prototypical angina chest pain model is very much what men suffer and women have very different presentations for coronary ischemia. So on and on and on. So that really hit home when you mentioned that that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. It's when you start kind of looking at one thing, you realize how endemic it is in, yeah. in everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Not it's sure. sad, but it's also an opportunity, you know, yeah. like, just like we all kind of, you know, we didn't get the sex education that we needed. N- neither did our parents. That's why yeah. they didn't have that talk with you. Honestly, right. I think they were just trying to figure it out themselves. Right. Yeah. And it's very difficult to explain something that you don't have a firm grasp on. Right. Yourself, you know, or you have conflicting feelings about, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to tell my kid about this thing that I have a lot of shame about. Yeah. No, you're just not, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think the opportunity is with more information and a better understanding that this stuff is OK to talk about, because mm-hmm. 
at the end of the day, it is about our bodies. It's about our health. It's about our well-being. Right. You know, it's just part of the whole package of being a person. Amen. I love it. So true. (laughs) true. Nice and prepared for this interview. I actually listened to a podcast from Dr. Karen Gurney called Rethinking Desire. She also wrote a book called The Truth About Desire and her goal, which is the same as yours, Marisha, and that's helping people get to a place of health, happiness, and well-being. And, you know, I think desire is often a misunderstood emotion. I mean, how we talk about it, how we feel about it, how we think about it and how desire plays a big role in our relationships. But my next question is, do you think people that are married or in a committed relationship can be mixed matched when it comes to desire? And how do you fix that problem when you are in a committed relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is actually one of the most common concerns that I have with my partnered clients. And sometimes they'll see me as individuals. Um, What that looks like is someone says, I have low desire, you know, I don't want to have sex with my partner and they want to, and I need help because, you know, I think the low desire partner usually takes on more responsibility of of being the problem. Right. Um, and we work together to figure out like, well, what would make sex more desirable for you? You know, how, how do you want to be in relationship to sex in your relationship? And how can we start to to make little changes where you can prioritize that and help your partner understand what would make sex better for you? And sometimes, you know, I work with couples where it's not only just a mismatch of desire. I do think we think of desire as like how much you want it. Um, But, you know, you mentioned stress earlier, and that really is one of the biggest factors about it. Like a mismatch can also look like both partners being so stressed out that neither wants it. And that means that intimacy just takes a nosedive completely. Um, I've had couples, you know, who have very little touch in their relationship because this has been such a point of stress for them that they're not even really hugging or kissing anymore. You know, just there's that lack of feeling like this is a person that I you know, want to be held with, held by, um, or kiss because I don't want to give them the wrong impression that I'm available for sex, or, uh, I don't want to feel pressured to have sex just because I'm doing X, Y, and Z. And so, yeah, there's, there's that mismatch too, of like both people aren't getting what they want, but they're also not getting their basic intimacy needs met by the relationship either. Mm -hmm. Um, there's all sorts of other mismatches, uh, like when it comes to a partner who wants a certain thing or has a specific kink or fetish, and they're not able to really explore that with their primary partner, or they're just realizing within partnership, oh, actually, I do want this, or I want to mm-hmm. try this. And their partner's like, nope, absolutely not. Under no circumstances, am I okay with that? And that is a mismatch that is, is very difficult and often painful to try to work through in partnership. So, um, you know, desire, you're right. We don't have a really good understanding of it. The book I always recommend is um, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, because in, in reference to female desire, I think it does a fantastic job of showing us, you know, how uh, culture plays a huge role in whether or not we feel desire or feel desired and some of the expectations that are placed on female sexuality. Well, you got to be beautiful, but (sighs) not too beautiful. Otherwise you're too powerful and men will be intimidated by you. And, (sighs) you know, you can be sexual, but keep it on the down low because you want to make sure that you are wife material (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, so many messages. I mean, yeah, so many yeah. messages. And so, when you're someone who embodies, you know, uh, a body with a vulva, and you're moving through the world, and you're getting all these messages, like it's very hard to know what is okay to want for yourself. You know, it's very hard to not have that external chatter of the world telling you what you should want and shouldn't want. But then, at the core, there's always going to be that nugget where you're like, actually, I want. X, Y, Z. So um, uh, I think context is also something that Emily Nagoski talks about. It can be really helpful for couples to explore 
you know, like there are differences in how we experience desire. And sometimes the context that's good for one partner is not good for another, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, I guess the long, long story short version of it is. And, um, we could all do uh, a lot more in educating ourselves on how these things work. Now that we do have resources that are focusing on these things from a kind of, you know, multi-gendered perspective. And you know, we will definitely even- link that. We should link that Beth in the, in the show notes for sure. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that recommendation. Yeah. Both those mm-hmm. books. Yeah. And absolutely. But, you know, I was just thinking when you were talking, you know, this is all about communication. And I just don't think we communicate enough as a society, especially with your, your, you know, your, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, or, you know, whoever you're in a relationship with, but, and that's just, you know, connection with your partner. And I think it's safe to say that if you're not feeling connected to your partner, the intimacy part won't be at its best. And I personally believe that communication is key in every relationship and checking in and having candid and perhaps even awkward conversation is a must. And if you're in a committed relationships, um, I think sex lives reflect on what's happening in that relationship. But how do you coach people in being a supportive partner, having those awkward conversations or, or painful conversations, especially if this is a long-term relationship when things can get quote unquote dull or stale? Yeah, well, sometimes it's just providing the space for them to have the awkward conversation in a place of non-judgment. So, you know, the feedback that I get from the majority of my clients, like when I ask them, like, oh, you know, any feedback for me, <laughs> you know, about the work <laughs> we've done? They're like, you were just, I never felt judged. You were so non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. And it gave me a place to just say what I needed to say, what I was like really feeling. Um, and that's true for the couples that I work with. So sometimes it's just giving them a place to be like, okay, this is your hour, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh-huh. make of it what you will. But our goal here, our intention is to try to get to some kind of root for both of you. So yes, it's going to be hard to maybe say those initial statements, but if you have someone there who's like, yeah, that's actually really common mm-hmm. for people to feel that or I see this with some of my other clients. So you're not alone. I mean, I say that all the time. I yeah. really do. Because every single person that comes to me is like, I've never worked with a sex coach before. That's usually one, one of the first things I say. I'm like, well, duh. Like none of us really have. Yeah. I wish I had worked <laughs> with a sex coach before. But this is you know, fairly new territory for most people. But the other thing they say is just like, I've, I, you know, I've, I've never really said these things out loud. Or I won't even Google this. I won't even you know, look this up for myself and having someone just say like that what I'm thinking and feeling is okay. Or that I'm not the only person that you've heard of that has had this experience. Mm. You know, the absence of talking about sex means that we don't know when people are getting it actually right. And we don't know when people are getting it wrong. So that's kind of the, you know, uh, unfortunate, uh, I guess, consequence of having a culture of silence around sexuality is like we don't know that the things that we're going through are actually really common um from the good to the bad to the ugly Mm -hmm. yeah i um that's that's so interesting i i wanted to talk a little bit um about consent um i I, you know i have struggled somewhat first of all i think the whole idea of of, you know, of consent is such an important discussion and I'm, and I'm very much in favor of, it. but I've had sometimes hard time talking to my sons again and my daughter and, you know, but mostly my sons about, you know, consent and what it means. And I, I sometimes feel like, you know, it's, it's important to have boundaries, but sometimes in spontaneous moments or somebody you don't know that well, the boundaries may not, not, not may not be known or expressed. And so I'm not really sure what I'm asking is that, can you maybe just comment a little bit on how you talk to your clients about consent and, and no means no, and things like that. I'm, I'm really um, interested in that. Yes. Um, so consent is a big part of having great sex with people. <laughs> and one of the things that I usually bring up with my clients is how, um, folks in the BDSM community have really had to hone this particular sexual communication skill because 
if you are someone who has a particular kink or fetish and you want to enact that with another human being, you really have to get clear about like what it is that each of you will be contributing to the experience and how that will actually make it good for both of you. Right. And so, you know, there are models that have been developed. I love the fries model, which um, plant parenthood has a cute little like graphic on their website about this. You can always share references on plant parenthood. They have like, you know, they can deconstruct some of these things a little bit better and make it very like clear. So I love that um, this fries model, it stands for freely given. So you're giving permission for somebody else to engage in an act. Um, It's reversible. So that's the part of consent that I think is really tricky is that like, Mm -hmm. even if I've said that I'm okay, or I I want to do something, even like, say a casual hookup, like you Mm -hmm. meet somebody online, and then you're like, yeah, let's do this. And then you get there and you're like, "Mm, no, uh, not for me, not today. Uh, Consent should be reversible. Everyone should be able to have the the, the ability to change their mind, even in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's informed. So we see this with like STIs. If you know that you have an STI that can be transmitted, even with a barrier method, you have to share that information before engaging with someone so that they, they are informed to be right. able to consent to having sex with you. Mm-hmm. Right. And also informed means they need to be in a headspace where they can make that uh, consent under like relatively clear (laughs) frame of mind. Right. Um, it's enthusiastic. So yes, we're both game to do this. Like, I think most people would agree that when our partners are enthusiastic about the things that we want, it makes it a more fun experience for us and it's specific. So just because I've said, I want to do this doesn't mean I'm going to agree to every single thing that you try to do Mm. with me. Um, we need to, go back to the drawing board and give specific permission for certain things. And so, you know, that sounds like a lot, but I do think this can happen organically. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that consent can it necessarily has to be unsexy, you know, right. talking about it, it, it's, it does get caught up with this idea that like, if I'm talking about what I like, that makes me a slut. Right. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm talking about what I like, it means that I don't trust the other person to just do, do things that make me feel good. Yeah. But you know, going back to my earlier statement, like everybody is different. So we're just really giving the other person the opportunity to know us more. And to your point earlier, Beth, about connection, like that is the gift I think that sex Mm -hmm. gives us is, you know, we get to feel more connected when someone is like, oh, you like that? Let me do that for you. Oh, you don't like that? I will never do that again unless you ask for it. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's kind of like that, you know, talking about it again, normalizes it or, you know, bringing it out in the open and it, it you know, it doesn't have to be a formal, like a legal negotiation. Like right. said, it could be part of the intimacy. And I think that's brilliant. So just to be F R I E S free fries. That's, right. that's a great way to remember it. That's brilliant. That's so cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Maisha, we, again, we would love, we have probably keep you on a couple more hours, but we're sensitive <laughs> yeah, to your time. Okay. And so, we, we are so grateful to you for you bringing your expertise and your passion about this onto our show. And so I, I would just like for you, and we're going to put all this in our show notes, but can you kind of tell our listeners where they can find you if they'd like to, you know, maybe use your services or other things, if you could just give us your online presence, we'd appreciate it. Absolutely. So my website is myishababble.com. There you can sign up for my newsletter, which is full of advice and, um, articles and my blog posts. Sometimes I do like a, you know, a a meditation worksheet that Mm -hmm. I send out for people to think more deeply about some of the things that we've even talked about today. Um, And then on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Myisha Battle. So you'll find me there. Fantastic. Um, and I, I'm, a, I'm, I know this is the case probably even pre COVID, but you, you can, you have an all, uh, you can do ses- sessions online, right? You don't have to be in That's your, right. okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. I'm completely awesome. remote right now. So I okay. have clients, uh, from coast to coast and, awesome. and everywhere in between right now. So. <laughs> well, wonderful. Again, thank you. Um, thanks yes, for everything thank you're doing you. to, to normalize this and, and, and again, bring that part of wellness to, um, your clients into the world. We really appreciate you. 
It is my pleasure. And I know earlier when we were, before we were um, recording, you said that you want to put yourself out of business. I'd love to not be in business. I'd like yeah. to do other things. <laughs> exactly. um, I, exactly. I have a lot of talents. Exactly. I think this is where, you know, I'm most needed. So I'll, I'll keep working at it until <laughs> no one needs me anymore. That'll be a great day. That's right. That's it will. Right. Well, it will. Well, we appreciate you all so you do. Thank well, you. thanks so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Maisha, thanks again. And uh, with that, we'll be right back after this message. Suck it up. It's not a big deal. Snip out. Just get over it. We've all heard it. But if you're experiencing extreme stress, it's not just in your head. It can affect your entire body because toxic stress can hurt us physically without us even knowing it. If you've lost a job, worry about your next meal, or have trouble making it through the day, if you're feeling the effects of stress, we can help. Text STRESS to 211211 to find a solution. Welcome back. Thank you to our amazing guest. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. I, I just, she's such a good speaker. And I want to thank our audience for listening in. And we appreciate you so much. And Scott and I hope that you took some valuable information from this episode and apply it to your life in one way or another. Intimacy is not always an easy conversation to have, right, Scott? It's not easy to have. And, um, and yet I know it's so important to our overall sense of wellness and, and health. And so um, look at it that way. Look at it as something that's important for your health, just like sleep and, and diet and other things are. So I, I this, what a great talk, just so much information. And I, I look forward to maybe looking into some of her uh, references that she provided to look, um, to learn some more. And having her back, I'd love to have her back on. Yes, for sure. Okay, guys, if you're not subscribed to our show, you need to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any of the other episodes. And remember, we are syndicated, so the show will be on the Up To Me radio channel and on the following apps, Spotify, Alexa, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. We look forward to serving you in the episodes to come. So until next time, have a healthy day. Mm -hmm.